Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal it is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Friday, January the 19th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, uh, to yet another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal special uh, worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the complaint uh, delivered to the State of Israel in Davos, Switzerland, during the World Economic Forum. There's another report on the impact of the Israeli occupation forces policy on the Bedouin sector in Palestine. Journalist John Pilger has died at the age of 84, and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is worsening every single day. In the second and third hours, we listen to a panel discussion of experts from Electronic Intifada, one of the primary sources on the situation in Palestine. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude with our Um Kaltum Orchestra Film Festival. Uh, This is taken uh, from a concert uh, live uh, on um, Radio Cairo and Cairo TV in 1960. Let's listen in. نعم الفتاح مصطفى والأغنية الثانية وكانت كلماتها لأحمد رامي وأما الأغنية الأخيرة فهي لبيرم التونسي أغنية الحب كده فتح الستار وارتفع التصفيق
كان الختام المسك في هذه السهرة التي قدمتها كوكب الشرق ام كلثوم باغنية حبيبي كده من كلمات بيرم التونسي والحان رياض السباطي ايها السادة وتنقضي سهرة اخرى من سهرات ام كلثوم ونتطلع جميعا الى الشهر القادم 
وإلى مطلعه حيث نلتقي مرة ثانية بهذا الفن الرفيع وحيث نلتقي في مكان آخر بأم كلثوم لتجدوا بغنائها العذب الجميل أيها السادة لعلكم قد استمتعتم كما تستمتعون دائما بهذه السهرات الحلوة العزبة وإلى لقاء آخر والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله Welcome back and uh, that was um, Radio Cairo uh, from the year uh, 1960 in fact uh, Um Kaltum's orchestra and of course uh, that uh, is classic Egyptian uh, music uh, from North Africa you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal a special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Friday, uh, January the 19th, uh, 2024. Uh, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and these are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. A statement titled, quote, Legal Action Against Crimes Against Humanity, unquote, accuses Israel of committing genocide in Gaza. A criminal complaint has been filed against the Israeli President Isaac Herzog uh, during his visit to the Davos for the World Economic Forum. Switzerland's prosecution office stated it had received the complaint but did not indicate who filed it or what was claimed. Quote, the criminal complaint will now be examined in accordance with the usual procedure, unquote, the Swiss office stated. In a press conference, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told reporters that Israel must take control of all uh, land west of the River Jordan, which would hinder the two-state solution concept. This is a necessary condition, and it conflicts with the idea of Palestinian sovereignty. Uh, What to do? I tell this truth to our American friends, and I also stop the attempt uh, to impose a reality on us that would harm Israel's security, he said. AFP obtained a statement titled Legal Action Against Crimes Against Humanity, issued in which Israel is accused of genocide in Gaza. On Thursday, Herzog dared to say that it was painful for Israelis to know that Gazans were suffering so much, excusing uh, the Israeli aggression by blaming the victims in Palestine and accusing them of entrenching themselves in an infrastructure of terror of unbelievable size and scope. Herzog uh, left out the part where the Israeli occupation continues to commit massacres against civilians and deprive Gazans of communication and Internet services uh, for the eighth consecutive day. The most recent uh, data revealed by the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza that over 2,000 massacres have been committed since October the 7th, while the civilian death toll has risen due to the Israeli war has risen to 24,762, and the number of injured rose to 62,108. In addition, out of 2.2 million Palestinians in Gaza, every single one of them is grappling with hunger and food insecurity. UN human rights experts warn, while calling for the deliveries of sufficient aid to face the challenge of possible starvation among the entire population. And in other news uh, related to Palestine, they left behind their homes with everything in them and were not able to return, not even to collect their belongings. 
anyone who dared to go back was beaten, arrested, or had his vehicle burned. Abu Najay al-Omar is an 80-year-old Palestinian man. He spends most of his time crying and bemoaning that he and his family were forced to leave the Bedouin community east of Ramallah. Quote, we dream about it day and night, unquote, he told the Palestinian Chronicle. Every several months ago, a group of illegal Jewish settlers protected by the Israeli army and police forced him and his family to leave their house and their land. Al Omari was lived, uh, has lived in the Yan Samia area since the 1960s. It is a vast, beautiful land surrounded by mountains, which in water springs and characterized by a particularly fertile soil. Al Omari, a father of eight children, worked as a farmer and breeder. His family was one of the dozens that formed a Bedouin community, which gained a prominent place in Palestinian society. According to Al Omari, uh, for decades the, the Israeli attacks against them have never ceased. He told us that since 1967, Bedouin families in the area have been subjected to harassment and assaults, whether at the hands of the Israeli settlers or soldiers. From time to time, they would steal our livestock and prevent us from grazing them in several areas, sometimes under the pretext that it was a military zone, and sometimes that the grazing areas were under the control of the Israeli state, and sometimes under the pretext that they were close to the settlements he lamented. But we came here long before the settlements were built, he added. These restrictions, however, deepened the relationship between the Palestinian population and this land. The population has grown, and they began to cultivate the land with various crops in order to diversify their sources of livelihood. And if you would like to read this article in its entirety, uh, just log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, the first and the last time, according to Ramsey Barut, uh, that he met uh, John Pilger in person was some six years ago in 2018. Uh, Ramsey Barud uh, was invited to deliver a speech at the NSW Parliament in Sydney, Australia. Among the large crowd were many that I knew, according to uh, Barut, and respected, a former foreign minister, socially conscientious MPs, and morally driven intellectuals and activists, and so on. As I stood at the podium, glancing at the crowd, I saw John Pilger. He had a big smile on his face, and if he was in great anticipation to hear uh, Barut speak, reality was entirely different. I would have rather listened to John than to lecture before him. As I expressed many, many thank yous, I made a point of emphasizing that I have molded my journalism around that of John Pilger. The painful truth is that growing up in a refugee camp in Gaza, we rarely affiliated Western media, intellects, and journalists uh, with truth-telling in general. Though with time, I realized that this wholesale assumption was hardly fair associating bias and everything Western had its own justification, if not logic. Aside from the typical corporate bias media narrative on Palestine, the Middle East, the Arab and Muslim world, in fact, the entirety of the global south there were those who were identified as part of the left. 
We were told that those supposed leftists are the exception to the norm, but the experience has taught me that aside from ideological nuances, even the so-called left still saw the non-Western world based on different sets of unique biases. They perceived the rest of the world through judgmental eyes as if they and they alone had access to a moral code according to which the rest of us must be filtered. Those leftists are only against certain kinds of wars, especially if they perceive military interventions to be channeled by imperialist agendas. For them, so-called humanitarian intervention is morally justified, although there is no evidence that Western interventions of that kind ever bode well for any country. Ultimately, uh, that reasoning tends to have little impact on the outcome of international conflicts, where some leftists often find themselves siding with the very imperialist powers they supposedly loathe whenever it is convenient. And then they are the John Pilgers of, of this world, principled to the core and able to understand, dissect, and convey the political, cultural, and historical complexities of conflicts to millions of people around the world. Quote, we are beckoned to see the world through one-way mirrors, as if we are threatened and innocent and the rest of humanity is threatening or wretched or expendable, unquote, Pilger said at his Sydney Peace Prize acceptance speech in 2009. For the Australian-born journalists, whose impact on our understanding of major global conflicts is arguably unparalleled in the modern history, these were not mere words but principles to which he adhered through his life until his passing on December 30th. You can read this article as well uh, in its entirety uh, over uh, the Pan-African Newswire website. And finally, Israel has denied access to more than 75% of planned humanitarian aid and supply missions into Gaza, according to the United Nations. Only seven of the 29 missions, 24% have been accomplished, either fully or partially. During the first two weeks of January, reported the U.N. Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs uh, on Wednesday. This is according to an article by Noah Barrows Friedman. Approximately 95% of missions, missions that involve the distribution of fuel to water facilities and medicine to health centers in the northern half of Gaza, quote, have been denied access by Israel's authorities Unquote, uh, the United Nations says the lack of fuel, quote, for water, sanitation, and hygiene increases risk of health and environmental hazards, unquote, OSHA reported, whereas a lack of medicine has debilitated the functionality of these six partially functioning hospitals in the north. Israel's current prevention of humanitarian aid missions to the northern areas of, of Gaza, quote, marked a spike, unquote, compared to the previous months, the United Nations warned. At the same time, only 98 truckloads of food, medicine, and other aid entered the Gaza Strip on Wednesday through the Rafa crossing in the south and the Kareem Shalom, that is Kareem Abu Salim commercial crossing at the southeastern boundary with Israel, the United States, the United Nations added. Before October 7th, an average of 500 trucks entered Gaza each day. That number of trucks was the bare minimum needed for Palestinians struggling to survive under the strict blockade by Israel, which they have imposed on the coastal enclave since 2007. Last week, directors of the World Food Program 
the World Health Organization, and the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF, said in a joint statement that, quote, a fundamental step change in the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza is urgently needed, unquote, as the, quote, risk of famine grows and more people are exposed to deadly disease outbreaks, unquote. And with that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. The Pan-African Newswire uh, can be reached at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if... um, you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Friday, uh, January 19th, uh, 2024, go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for uh, this week.
the legendary Tina Turner uh, from uh, the 1980s, We Don't Need Another Hero. You're listening uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, this Friday, uh, January 19th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit, and we're going to uh, return to Electronic Intifada, the panel discussion analyzing developments in Palestine over the last several days. This was, of course, uh, documents the 103rd day of the siege upon Gaza. Uh, Let's listen uh, to uh, this report uh, from Electronic Intifada. Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, January 17th. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Winstanley, John Elmer, Tamara Nassar, and Ali Abunima. It's day 103 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. We have a packed show for you today, including analysis on last week's International Court of Justice hearings and conversations with some of our good friends from Gaza so I'll keep this news report brief. Between Monday and Tuesday afternoons, more than 150 Palestinians were killed and another 320 injured in more than a dozen separate massacres, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza, bringing the death toll to more than 24,000 since October 7th, with more than 61,000 Palestinians injured. Thousands more remain under the rubble and on the roads, unable to be rescued or recovered by ambulance or civil defense teams, the health ministry added. Dr. Ashraf Al-Kedra, spokesperson for the health ministry, stated yesterday yesterday that 350,000 chronically ill patients are without their medications across the Gaza Strip and called on international institutions to provide medications for them immediately. Save the Children said that around 1,000 children in Gaza, quote, have lost one or both of their legs, many having them amputated without anesthetic and will require a lifetime of medical care. One in every 100 people in Gaza have been killed and entire neighborhoods have been destroyed. The Palestinian Health Ministry says that 4% of Gaza's population has been killed, wounded or is missing under the rubble of destroyed buildings. Three United Nations agencies warned on Monday that, quote, as the risk of famine grows and more people are exposed to deadly disease outbreaks, a fundamental step change in the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza is urgently needed. The heads of the World Food Program, UNICEF, and the World Health Organization say that, quote, getting enough supplies into and across Gaza now depends on the opening of new entry routes, more trucks being allowed through border checks each day, fewer restrictions on the movement of humanitarian workers, and guarantees of safety for people accessing and distributing aid. The World Health Organization's Director General implored for unimpeded and safe access to humanitarian aid. 
quote, people in Gaza are suffering from a lack of food, water, medicines, and adequate health care. Famine will make an already terrible situation catastrophic because sick people are more likely to succumb to starvation and starving people are more vulnerable to disease, the WHO Director General said. In a statement on Tuesday, Euro-Mediterranean Human Rights Monitor said that, quote, the Israeli army is not only starving Palestinians in the northern Gaza Valley, but has also killed dozens of individuals who tried to receive the meager aid that did arrive there, perpetuating the genocide that Israel has been committing against the people of the Gaza Strip since October 7th. The human rights group added that it has documented shocking testimonies of the Israeli army killing and injuring dozens of Palestinians on January 11th on al-Rashid Street in the west of Gaza City who were trying to receive humanitarian aid. The human rights organization demanded that the involved United Nations agencies be held accountable for their failure to guarantee suitable channels for providing the populace with humanitarian aid. According to the testimonies, quote, Israeli quadcopter drones opened fire on Palestinians who had gathered to receive flour brought by UN trucks. 50 Palestinians were killed and dozens more were injured during the incident. Testimonies gathered by Euromed Monitor indicate that dozens of residents gathered on Al-Rashid Street, which had been devastated by Israeli bulldozers in recent weeks, awaiting the arrival of the trucks carrying flour. The quadcopter drones arrived suddenly, however, and started shooting at the residents. Euromed Monitor emphasized that international humanitarian law strictly prohibits the use of starvation as a weapon of war. As an occupying power, Israel is obligated under international humanitarian law to provide basic needs and protection to the people in Gaza. Also on Tuesday, reports emerged of Israeli forces bombing areas around the Nasser Hospital complex in Khan Yunus in the south into the early hours of this morning. Journalist Bisan Auda recorded this video of herself in that area last night. Hey everyone, this is Bisan from Gaza. I'm still alive. I'm surviving after the day three after 100. But that not be the last day or the last night in Mount Medical Complex. As your hospital is new to the invasion, uh, the tanks are maybe 40 to 50 meters um, away from us, the soldiers as well. So the situation is really hard. The carpet bombing before these moments was just yani, unbelievable. unbelievable. The bombings are really loud and are so close to us. Uh, the situation is complicated. I'm trying to find any internet connection to tell you what is happening. But Nasser Medical Complex is now near to be invaded. It's the last functioning hospital. I'm trying to find any internet connection so I can tell you what is happening. The carpet bombing, the, the ambulances could not even reach the, um, uh, the injuries or the people were killed and injured because of the carpet bombing in the areas of Batmus Samin, Gizan Najjar, Jortil Lut, um, the, the west and the south of Khan Yunus Refugee Camp. Uh, people who are uh, displaced inside the hospital, dozens of thousands are uh, just moving randomly, cannot find any place to go. They try to go to the schools around the hospital or even to uh, the refugee camp itself to find any safe place while the carpet bombing and the uh, bombing engine. 
Then around 4 o'clock a.m. local time this morning, Bisan recorded this video. As far as um, telling people to boycott, to strike, to stop the economic activities, to do anything to make their voices heard and their needs just matched We still have two hours to the daylight, to the sunshine. So the light is faster than the sound, so we predict to, to hear a sound sometimes if we uh, saw the sky lighting. If sounds are so close. That was Bisan Auda recording video uh, early this morning in Palestine. As of January 11th, according to the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, 1.9 million people, or nearly 85% of Gaza's population, were estimated to be internally displaced, including many who have been displaced multiple times as families are forced to move repeatedly in search of safety. Nearly 1.4 million internally displaced persons are sheltering in 154 UN facilities across all five Gaza governorates, including 160,000 in the north of Gaza, in the north and Gaza City. Facilities far exceeding their intended capacity, says the UN. For the fifth consecutive day today, Gaza has been experiencing its seventh and longest telecommunications blackout in three months and two workers on a mission to repair damaged lines were killed in Khan Yunus on Saturday, reported our colleague Maureen Murphy. Maureen also reported that, quote, in his first video address since November, Qassam Brigade spokesman uh, Abu Abeda said that it showed how a seemingly permanent occupation can become a global pariah. Quote, if justice existed on earth, he said, Israel would be disarmed and its leaders and army put on trial and severely punished. Abu Obeda said that with locally made weapons, Qassam had disabled a thousand military vehicles in a hundred days and that its fighters, quote, had maintained their cohesion during that period. This is, quote, despite the huge disparity in material and military power, between the Palestinian resistance and Israel, and despite the massacres perpetrated by Israel in Gaza, he observed. Read more about Abu Obeda's address and the overall humanitarian disaster in Gaza in Maureen's report, Genocide in Gaza Stretches Past 100 Days, on electronicintifada.net. 
And finally, in the occupied West Bank, Israeli soldiers have been carrying out raids, ransacking homes, and installing new checkpoints. Israeli airstrikes on the city of Tulkarem killed at least four Palestinians and damaged an ambulance. Israeli bulldozers tore up streets in the Nur Hashem's refugee camp inside Tulkarem, destroying critical infrastructure for the community. Night raids and house searches were carried out by Israeli forces in occupied East Jerusalem and in several towns and villages near Ramallah. In Nablus, Al Jazeera reports that, quote, Israeli forces killed three Palestinians in a drone strike. The city faced similar disruptions as in East Jerusalem and Ramallah, with tightened security at various checkpoints. Additionally, Israeli settlers attacked the outskirts of Burin village, targeting a civilian's home and vehicle. Israeli soldiers used a man as a human shield during a raid into the town of Dura on Monday. Al Jazeera interviewed Baha Abu Ras, a mobile phone shop owner in the town. He said that the soldiers stormed into his shop, took him outside, and made him walk toward the jeeps. One soldier told him that he would be used as a human shield so the youth wouldn't throw stones. For much more news and analysis, visit electronicintifada.net. We're so uh, joined. Uh, we're so honored to be joined by our good friend and comrade Haider Aid. Uh, Haider is a Palestinian activist, author, and professor at Gaza's Al-Aqsa University. He's a survivor of the Gaza genocide and is speaking to us live from South Africa, where he and his family have fled. Haider, it's so good and such a, an honor uh, to have you. It's been. Um, been just harrowing, uh, you know, trying to be in touch with you when you were in Gaza, um, and and it's so it's uh, it's really good to see your face. Thank you so much for coming on the live stream today. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Nora. The, the honor is mine. And in fact, uh, you know, I spent the first two months in Gaza, and I was worried about Ali Abu Nema. Because he kept sending me messages every single night, and you know, wanting to know my whereabouts. And if I get late, you know, if I get uh, back late to him, he would really worry. And so I was worried about him. That was my worry at the time. But uh, yeah, seriously speaking, um, these two months, I, I must admit, the worst two months of my life. And I think that every single Gazan can say the same thing. And uh, as you, as you, as you mentioned, Nora, I, I came uh, to South Africa, uh, with my wife and my two little kids. The worst part of it was the reaction of the kids. And I have a, I have a seven year old daughter and a six year old daughter. Um, and, um, so far I've been displaced four times with them. I mean, the first time um, when at the beginning of the genocide, uh, the end of the first week, uh, I live in the Rimal neighborhood. And uh, I live in a residential tower and I was contacted by an Israeli intelligence um, officer working for the Sheen Bait and he asked us to evacuate. At the time we misunderstood because we thought that they wanted to bring down the residential tower itself. Luckily, you know, we learn from our experiences and because of what happened in previous massacres, we decided to put um, our passports and identity cards and the girls' birth certificate and our marriage certificate in a small bag next to the door of the flat. 
right from the first day of the massacre, of the genocide. So when he called us, we, um, um, and he was, uh, I mean, he knew my name and he said, we want you to leave and head to the north. And at that time, they were shelling the north inside. So they were asking us to leave to an area where we would be definitely killed. Uh, we stayed with our neighbors in the um, opposite building. And um, that was the first time they used a new, um, I don't know whether it was new or old, a new military strategy they called, in, in Arabic they called Hizam Nari, um, um, a fire belt, where they attack the area, you know, airstrikes, constant airstrikes for seven or eight hours. So um, we were about, uh, about seven or eight families trapped in one small corridor. Uh, until the morning, until six o'clock in the morning, uh, inhaling strange gas. And of course, because I used my hand to close my daughter's ears, I lost my hearing. <laughs> yeah, so that was, uh, that was the price because they didn't know how to do that. And you know, they have little kids. So anyway, the following day in the morning, we moved, uh, we found out that the whole neighborhood was flattened down. The whole neighborhood of Rimal was flattened down, was, our flat was uninhabitable, we had absolutely nothing, and I left my car in the garage uh, under the rubble. Um, we moved to the north to, to um, Sheikh Radwan, where I stayed with my brother for three nights, and the same scenario was repeated again. But this time they wanted, you know, the entire population of the Gaza city and the northern part of Gaza, we are talking about 1.1 million people, to move within six or seven hours to the north, uh, to the south. And they posted a map, and that map showed the road on Salah uh, al-Din Road, actually, uh, from the north to Khan Yunis. Now, when I looked at the map, I didn't notice that it did not include Rafah. So the beginning of the map of the road was from uh, the north to Khan Yunus. And so we packed our, you know, all my family, my brother's family. We were about 12 people in a small car. And because everybody was panicking, uh, I needed to be in control. They were expecting me to be in control. So I tried to be in control. And I drove without knowing that I was not supposed to reach Rafah, between Khan Yunus and Rafah. And I read Khan Yunus, and I tell you, the, I mean, the scene, it was a repeat of the Nakba. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on, on, you know, horses, donkeys, trucks, lorries, cars, people walking, halting toddlers. It was, you know, unbelievable, unbelievable. We never thought, we were so naive to believe that, you know, the Israelis wouldn't be able, or rather wouldn't be allowed to cross the red line and to repeat the scenario of the Nakba again. Yes, we were naive. We were very naive. I discussed this with uh, Ali and we agreed. I mean, the world would not allow another genocide. I mean, the only, or rather the first genocide in the 21st century. Anyway, my, my brother had, while I was driving, he was sitting next to me with his daughter and his son, and about 10 people were sitting at the back. He had um, a minor heart attack when we crossed from... Uh, <laughs> and 
The surprise is that we found out that we were the only people on that road. So, of course, I couldn't go back, and I had to accelerate. I had to press very hard on the accelerator until we arrived. Luckily, I don't know how it happened. We were the only people on the Salah al road between Khan Yunus and Rafah, and we could hear the bombing, and everybody was panicking, and uh, I was trying to help my brother. And then we arrived safely, luckily, uh, and we stayed with my sister. And the first night we arrived, the Israelis, uh, you know, shelled the house next to my sister's house. And you can't, I, I mean, that was one of the worst nights, the second worst night in my life because my kids were screaming and I couldn't do anything. It was dark, of course, in the middle of the night. So it was, you know, I don't want to go on to kind of the personal experience, but it, let's use it as a microcosm. And again, and I said this to Ali so many times, my experience is nothing, nothing compared to the sufferings of the tens, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians and Gazans. I've lost 40 of my cousins with their sons, daughters, nieces, direct cousins, first cousins. And I've lost 40. And again, when I compare to other people, entire families. And by the way, in 2014, we were talking about Israel aiming to, um, you know, wipe out entire families. When we, when we said families at the time, we, we meant nuclear families. And now, when we say families, we are talking about extended families. We are talking about clans. So when they started targeting the Eids, I mean, it's not only one Eid, it's not one family of the Eids, but, you know, the entire clan. So, so many clans, Al-Aspal, Abu Shamala, etc., etc., were wiped out. Wiped out. And that was so worrying. And, and, you know, the area where I was staying is not safe, but where can you go? Now, the overwhelming majority of Gazans are staying in Rafah, because initially they were asked to move to the south, to the, to the middle areas. The middle areas include you know, the Nusayrat refugee camps, Al-Burej refugee camps, Al-Maghazi, and Deir al-Balah. And now they are attacking the middle areas, and people are only left with one option, to move to the south. The south is Khan Yunis and Rafah. But, but Khan Yunis itself is under heavy bombardment right now. It has been since the beginning, by the way, since the beginning of this genocide. And now, more than two-thirds of Gazans are staying. You know, I'm in contact with people. I mean, people are sleeping on the street. People are sleeping uh, on the streets and uh, under the trees. Uh, uh, am I losing you? Sorry. I can't see you. Oh, we can still see you. Yeah, no, because I lost you. I don't know. I can't see you anymore. We, we, can, still, anyway. we can still hear you, Haidar. Yeah, yeah. So, so now, um, you know, the only question before, before I finish, uh, look, it's, uh, it's very traumatic. And, uh, it has been a very traumatizing experience, uh, for myself, for my family, for my friends, for every, uh, single Gazan I know. And, um, when I was contacted at the beginning, uh, at the beginning of the massacre, look, I've been through all massacres all the massacres since 2008. 
2012, 2014, 2021, and the Great March of Return. And every single time, uh, because I have dual citizenship, the South African Embassy in Ramallah uh, would contact me and ask me whether I would want to leave. And every single time I said no. Uh, well, I didn't have kids at the time. Now, this time I lost my house. Um, you know, I lost my name. We lost Gaza. We've lost Gaza. Gaza is gone. Gaza is gone. You know, according to Wall Street reports, it will take... Uh, you know, uh, it will take us to remove, it will take us one year to remove the rubble and to reconstruct Gaza between eight and ten years. I mean, according to reports, reliable reports by, by the Wall Street Journal. So when they contacted me at the beginning, the embassy, I mean, they contacted me at the beginning of the massacre, uh, I, you know, myself and Drifka, my wife, we said no. We are staying with our families. Uh, and, and then after a one month after that, they contacted again. And that was the time when I started seeing serious psychological, uh, I would call them, uh, you know, traumatic changes in my, you know, my kids, my two kids. And that was the time when we had a very serious discussion, myself and my partner, and we decided to take that offer. Um, foreign nationals, and a dual citizen, people with dual citizenship, had already started moving. At the beginning, Israel decided to close all the crossings, including the only exit Palestine, Gaza has to the external world, and that is the Rafah crossing. The Egyptians were threatened by the Israelis, and therefore they decided to close the Rafah crossing. Everybody knows the story. But later on, uh, with some pressure from the colonial West, because they wanted to take their citizens out of Gaza, uh, the, beginning with, you know, uh, Americans, then Canadians, Germans, etc. South Africans were left to the end because Israel wanted to punish South Africa for the stance taken by the South African government, reducing diplomatic ties, etc. And I can say with very clear, very clear consciousness now, and I'm 100% I'm sure now, that um, had they waited until the ICJ case last week, we would have never been allowed to leave Gaza. Full stop. Impossible. So anyway, I left with my, uh, my two kids. And you know the drive between Rafah and uh, uh, Cairo, El Qahira? It's a five-hour drive. It took us 28 hours. And upon arrival in Cairo, we were terribly exhausted, almost fainting. Um, we, were, um, we stayed for three, four hours. Then we were taken to the airport. We flew to Johannesburg via Addis Ababa. And what I, I, what I want to tell you is that I'm still feeling very, very conflicted, very ex extremely conflicted. And um, I think it has something to do with that. And I'm conscious of that. This is the point. I don't want to deny it. It's the, uh, the survivor's uh, guilt complex. And now we have to start a new life. Today was the girl's first uh, day at school. And it's not easy. You know, language, a new environment, a new culture. Luckily, the girls speak English. They know English because I used to communicate with them in English 
and Fusha Arabi in, 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 in Gaza. Uh, but also, uh, I, I, I came last year with them and decided to, uh, to visit South Africa for three weeks and to expose them, you know, to this multiracial, multicultural environment. So it, it has been a little bit difficult, but not as bad as I expected. And this is why we need to spend more time with them. And of course, you know, finding a flat with the support of our comrades here, it has been easy. I must say that uh, I'm trying to find a new job after I retire. That will be in April. Um, so that's my story from beginning to end. I hope I didn't bore you. Haidar. I, the only thing I can say is Alhamdulillah, Assalamualaikum. I, I can't begin to uh, fathom, and it, it may well take you years to begin to cope with the levels of trauma and grief and the feelings, as you put it to me in a previous conversation, of, of, of survivor's guilt. And um, But I, I have to say, first of all, that uh, while you were in Gaza, um, I was amazed that through all that horror that you experienced, horror that none of us can, except those who've been through it, can relate to, you continued your work. You continued to write. You continued to speak out. I was always relieved and comforted when I saw you sharing articles and comments and analyses on WhatsApp. And I have to tell you that uh, on... Uh, on the day, it was uh, December 5th, I'm looking at the message now, you sent me a message, Marhaban Ali, وصلت للتو جنوب إفريقيا بعد معانات كبيرة. Hello Ali, I just arrived in South Africa after great suffering. And that was on December 5th, and I felt a great sense of relief when I got that message from you. Um, two days later, we would learn that actually on the next day, December 6th, Israel murdered our dear friend Rifat. And uh, that, that, that's something we will never forgive or forget. And uh, we wish he could be here with us in this conversation. And we're just grateful and happy to have you here. And we wish you and Rifka and the girls all the best. And we pray night and day that everyone in Gaza, everyone in Gaza will be safe. And no one will ever begrudge you that safety. No one will say you should have stayed in that hell if there was a way out. And uh, you are as such that you have been for so many years, Haidar, such an important voice uh, for our people, for our cause, uh, for the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. And if you allow me to say that with all the trauma that you have been through, I don't think you waited more than a day or two days in South Africa before you continued your work with speeches, with rallies, with media appearances. And we need your voice in this world and we need the whole world to hear it. So thank you, Haidar. And thank you for putting up with all my annoying WhatsApp messages. You had quite enough to deal with. But uh, let, me you, just, let me just say uh, that uh, I just, coming to uh, the recent, uh, the events of last week at the ICJ, 
I just want to read a sentence or two from a piece you wrote recently for Al Jazeera. You wrote, we Palestinians will not forget the sickening cowardice of the so-called international community, which has allowed and enabled this genocide. We will not forget how the nations of the world stood idly by as Israel's racist leaders openly claimed that we, the indigenous people of Palestine, the Amalek, the foe, that according to the Torah, God ordered the ancient Israelites to commit genocide against. You also wrote, but we will never forget what South Africa did for us. We will not forget how it showed us unwavering support and bravely took a stand for us at the world court when even our own brothers have turned our backs on us in fear. So I just want you to say a little bit more, Haidar, about what it was like both for you as a Palestinian and a South African to see this, what was the mood in South Africa, and uh, what do you hope will come from this? Yeah, well, um, you know, Ali, um, I mean, um, you know very well that there is a context and that context is, you know, in a way historical. Um, you, if you remember when, uh, when Israel decided to redeploy its troops around Gaza, of course they call it withdrawal. And we call it uh, redeployment surrounding Gaza and transforming it into, uh, into a concentration camp. Um, I don't like to say, uh, you know, the largest open air prison because it's not an open, I don't know what open air prisons uh, are, but I know what concentration camps are because I lived in a concentration camp. So Gaza was a concentration camp and all of that happened in 2006 when we were asked to head to the polling stations and vote for our representatives. And when I say our representatives, I'm not talking about you, Ali, uh, about Tamara. No, I'm talking about the residents of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Because Oslo, the Oslo Accords actually, um, reduced the Palestinian people to only those who live in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. So people went to the polling station, but not myself. I refused to vote because I don't believe that you can have true democracy under the barrel of the gun of a Zionist soldier. I am opposed to, legit to elections under occupation and settler colonialism. But anyway, people again, were naive to head to the polling stations, voting, not voting for a party, voting against a policy, against the two-state solution, against the Oslo Accords, against corruption. In other words, they voted against the will of the occupation and against the will of the United States of America, the enablers of occupation, the enablers of genocide. And this is why apartheid Israel in cahoot with reactionary Arab regimes and its enablers and supporters in the colonial West decided to impose this, you know, deadly medieval siege on, on, on the people, on, on Gazans. Now that was, that was the beginning of the context that I, uh, that I'm referring to. Israel wanted to test the water of the international community. If it carries out a war crime, a crime against humanity, how would the international community react? And this is why in 2006, uh, Israel committed, excuse me, um, you know, the Beit Hanun massacre. The, the international community did absolutely nothing. 
then 2008-2009, for 22 days, committing a horrific crime, killing more than 1,200 civilians, including 400 children. And what was the reaction of the international community? Nothing. Nothing. The international community stood idle. And therefore, Israel decided to repeat the same thing on, in 2012. And then in 2014, killing more than 2,200 people, um, almost half of them are children and women. And the international community, and, and when I talk about the international community, I'm talking about official bodies, official bodies of the international community. The international community blamed us. It blamed the victim. In other words, <coughs> the colonialists decided to endorse the Zionist narrative. Regardless of the losses of, you know, um, lives of civilians and children and women. And, and this is why what happened is that on the 7th of October, I myself, if you remember, Ali, I mean, people, um, youngsters who grew up, you know, between 2000, I mean, 2006, they were four years old and five years old. They grew up in this extermination camp. They know no other reality, no other world. They did everything, begged the international community, the Arabs, to put an end to this deadly siege. Nothing happened. Thousands of people died as a result of this deadly siege. And therefore, they decided to break the walls of our Warsaw Ghetto, the Gaza, ghetto, the Gaza Ghetto, on the 7th of October. And then that was used as an excuse to carry out this ongoing genocide. Now, we expected the international community to do something. War crimes, crimes against humanity, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, even Bethlehem called Israel an apartheid state, apartheid state. And what is the reaction of the international community? Absolutely nothing. As I'm speaking to you right now, a Palestinian child is being killed. By the time we finish this interview, between 15 and 20 Palestinian children in Gaza will be dead. Definitely. These are the statistics. And I think because of the joint history and the common history of struggle against apartheid and against settler colonialism, South Africa has decided to say enough is enough. The South African government, of course, is, you know, is a democratically elected government. Civil society organizations in South Africa, uh, our comrades in the solidarity movements here, you have solidarity movements, the BDS coalition, exerted pressure. And I, I know for years they have been exerting pressure on the South African government to cut its diplomatic ties with uh, apartheid Israel until it complies with international law. I mean, there is nothing wrong with that. This is the call made by the overwhelming majority of Palestinian civil society, including, you know, nationalist, uh, nationalist forces in Palestine. Now, this I has been going on. Yes, sorry. I don't Go ahead. You, you feel, no, feel free I, to interrupt yeah, me. No, I don't mean to interrupt you. I don't want sure. to interrupt you. But because he has limited time, we want sure. to bring in Ahmed Abufour, Yes, sure. who is uh, an international lawyer. He works with the Palestinian Human Rights Group, Al-Haq. And uh, we learned just before the show that uh, you two are actually uh, neighbors in Gaza, your family. <laughs> and, uh, proves, 
our theory now that has been proven over the last few months that literally everyone in Gaza knows everyone else, which of course amplifies and magnifies the horror and the tragedy because so many people are losing friends and family. So, Ahmed, we're so happy to have you back. Uh, and we had you back, uh, uh, we had you on a few weeks ago. Uh, we're going to get into some questions for, for, for you and for Haidar about the proceedings. But before that, let's just show this, these uh, two very short clips from uh, the, the proceedings. We're going to start uh, with uh, just a few seconds of uh, Blinne Nechroli, the Irish barrister who was part of the South African team. Uh, so let, let's just take a look at that. International community continues to fail the Palestinian people, despite the overt, dehumanizing, genocidal rhetoric by Israeli governmental and military officials matched by the Israeli army's actions on the ground. Despite the horror of the genocide against the Palestinian people being live-streamed from Gaza to our mobile phones, computers, and television screens, the first genocide in history where its victims are broadcasting their own destruction in real time in the desperate, so far vain hope that the world might do something. Yeah, and, and of course, for those of us who watched the whole presentation, it was, it was just an incredibly powerful and well put together presentation. But I'm, I'm going to ask both of you, but starting uh, with you, Ahmed, as an international lawyer, what was your impression of the proceedings? And uh, yeah, what, what, did you, what did you see last week? Uh, first of all, thank you for, for having me, uh, Ali, and thank you for the Electronic Intifada for the important journalistic work that you do in the age of, of uh, complicity of certain media outlets around the world. Uh, and there, um, not only complicity in, in genocide, I think also rationalization of the crimes committed against the Palestinians. I'm happy to see that uh, Haider is okay now, and, and if you allow me a little bit uh, before I, I answer your question. Um, when he was speaking, um, I, I couldn't help it but seeing images. Every place he mentioned, I know, I spent my whole life uh, there. We literally were two houses away. We were in the same neighborhood. His, his brother was my English teacher. I owe him a lot uh, that I am able to speak uh, uh, English. Um, and and um, the whole family actually was... Uh, was an important family in the in the neighborhood. I mean, Haider himself, a lot of young people uh, uh, owe him a lot. He's he's a great professor, and he taught a lot, like uh, like Rifat, who has left an impression on all of us and, and so many people. So I felt I need uh, I needed to say that for uh, for the people. Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And and answering your question, I think the 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 presentation of of, of South Africa. It was emotional for all of us as Palestinians. And the reason to that is that for the first time, uh, although it wasn't Palestinians who were speaking, they were speaking in Palestinian language, Palestinian analysis, Palestinian narration. And for the first time, I, uh, we could hear our own narrative uh, uh, being uh, presented at the International Court of Justice. Uh, and if you allow me something important to note here in such cases, of course, this is a court of, of law, but this is also a court of public opinion. For the first 
time, uh, the world has seen uh, um, the South African ar argument representing what the Palestinians uh, are, have been narrating for decades, and the Israeli arguments, how Israel is just defying, so to say, its, its uh, uh, atrocities. Uh, um, and it was very, very emotional to watch, uh, to watch this. I think they have, uh, legally speaking now, I think they, they have um, a, a very good case. Um, it was a very um, well-argued, well-structured, and I think you don't need to be a lawyer to watch the, uh, um, uh, the pleading and, and, and see that. Um, I think the importance of, uh, um, of this case is not only uh, um, from a legal perspective, I think also public opinion. Uh, the word so, uh, uh, Israel for what it is, in a way the mask is off, not only uh, from Israel, you know, um, also its allies. Uh, um, they can they can no longer claim that this is quote unquote the only democracy in the Middle East, nor can they uh, claim to be the protectors of human rights, because um, evidently they don't care about human rights uh, unless it's politically convenient to use it against their foes, uh, but not uh, against their allies. Um, on the on the arguments uh, themselves, I think South Africa provided a very strong case, uh, um, um, providing the court for what it needs for this particular procedure. Now we're talking about provisional measures. The court does not need to rule on the merits. All the need or, or all is needed from the court is to decide that there's jurisdiction prima facie. So at first glance, meaning that the court is probably ha would have uh, um, uh, jurisdiction on the matter, that th there are serious allegations of, uh, of genocide. And South Africa provided a very good case. The, the, the question remains which of the provisional measures the court would rule on. Um, and I think there, there is a room of, of, of legal arguments. The court might, might not uh, uh, rule on all provisional measures, but in my opinion, most of these provisional measures are, uh, if I can describe them this way, a law-hanging fruit. So, for example, the um, uh, allowing humanitarian aid is something that is not controversial. Preservation of evidence or allowing investigative uh, bodies, that is something the court uh, would most probably rule on. Perhaps the only um, um, matter that the court would have to look into a little bit deeper is this session of, of hostilities. And there, uh, Israel used uh, uh, an argument. I wouldn't be... Um, Naive to say that the Israeli uh, case was very weak. Uh, I agree it appeared weak for, for the public, but there were certain arguments that uh, the court might have to stop and, and contemplate. I'm not saying that um, uh, uh, these arguments are necessarily winning, but they might tone down uh, what the court orders, uh, in particular in relation to the cessation of hostilities. Uh, um, so the court might, uh, um, in a way, adjust this demand or uh, order it differently or not order it at all. But what's interesting, Ali, that uh, Israel used an argument that it's always using, and that is the body of law called international humanitarian law. Uh, this body of law is um, a body of international law that governs uh, armed conflicts, so governs occupation, a situation that was not supposed to uh, last that long, was supposed to be temporarily, and this is not new. Israel has for long uh, used the rules of international humanitarian law to justify its uh, violations. Because this body of law, by virtue, provides for the occupying power to um, uh, treat its population and the population of the occupied, um, um, of the occupied territory 
uh, differently. It has used this to justify its apartheid, but again, uh, these rules were not intended for a situation that long. Here, the, Israel argued that because it's conducting uh, um, a, military, um, a military operation against the Palestinian resistance, and this is in, in the context of an armed conflict, it does not necessarily mean uh, that there is uh, a genocide. Although I don't think this, this argument holds a solid uh, ground simply because they're not mutually exclusive. You, you can't have... Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... W- as I understand it, at this point, the South Africans don't have to prove that there is genocide. They just have to prove that there is a plausible case that there could be genocide so that the court would impose these so-called provisional measures, which is like an injunction saying freeze things where they are until we decide the case that uh, might take years. But nonetheless, the South Africans did and of course key to the crime of genocide is intent that uh, that genocide is not just acts like killing and uh, uh, murder and maiming and and expelling and so on but with the intent to destroy people in whole or in part the 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 south africans did nonetheless lay out a case that israel intends genocide and we have a very a short clip of one of the South African barristers, uh, Tembeka Ungukatobi, who is making that case. Let's take a quick look at this short clip and get get your uh, views on it. Tenafut have repeatedly called for Gaza to be wiped out, flattened, erased, and crushed on all its inhabitants. They have deplored anyone feeling sorry for the uninvolved Gazans, asserting repeatedly that there are no uninvolved, that there are no innocents in Gaza, that the killers of the women and children should not be separated from the citizens of Gaza, and that the children of Gaza have brought this upon themselves, and that there should be one sentence for everyone there, death. Finally, the lawmakers have called for mercilessly bombing from the air, with some advocating for the use of nuclear doomsday weapons, and a Nakba that will overshadow the Nakba of 48. The Prime Minister's genocidal speech has gained ground among some elements of civil society. A famous singer has repeated Mr. Netanyahu's Amalek reference, stating that Gaza must be wiped out and be destroyed with... So, actually, let me ask you, Haidar, because you are in Gaza, uh, how the experience you described for us a short time ago matches very precisely what the Israelis said they intended for Gaza, particularly the horrifying impact on your children and all children in Gaza. Do you see in the description that we just heard from uh, Tembeka, the uh, what Israeli leaders wanted did that match the reality in Gaza? Oh, you're muted, Haider. Oh. There we go. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry about that. Um, look, Ali, I've read the, the document, um, excellent 84-page 84, uh, 84 document, uh, written by 
the you know top legal minds here in South Africa, supported by some Palestinians, by the way. And I think, um, uh, you know, again, going back to the context, I mean, the, the unprecedented number of war crimes, crimes against humanity, etc., etc., that went by, you know, uh, unpunished with full impunity, uh, has definitely affected the credibility of international law in the eyes of the Palestinians in general, and the eyes of the Gazans in particular. Um, and I think, I, I strongly believe the moment I heard about the case that what what would be at stake is not only Gaza. It's the future of global justice. You know, this is a defining moment in the history of humanity. Some people think that I'm exaggerating. Some people don't like what I'm saying. But look, I mean, three months, you know, constant bombing, airstrikes, shelling, etc., etc., killing 1.5 to 2 percent of an entire population, I mean, that's a genocide, and somebody has to say something. We were waiting for our Arab brothers, our Arab brothers, for our Muslim brothers to do something. That hasn't happened. And I think what South Africa did came to our ears, I mean, it, it, it came like music to our ears. This is the first time a country uh, manages to cross the red line, as I said. And that red line is that you are taking Israel to the ICC, accusing it, uh, sorry, ICJ, accusing it of, you know, uh, committing a genocide. Now, that means you are t taking the entire West. That means you are trying a history of colonialism. That means you are putting the United States of America and imperialism on trial. And this is why the colonial West is, is, is not happy. As for the Palestinians of Gaza, to answer your question, Ali, and I can tell you, um, at the beginning, I think, you know, uh, having conversations with uh, relatives and families, and then, at the beginning, they didn't get it. How many times do we have, you know, to take Israel to... They didn't differentiate, for example, between the ICC and ICJ, but with the proceedings and hearing the defense using the Palestinian narrative, the Minister of Justice said we have to, to go back to what happened in 1948 in order to understand what is happening now. And I tell you, Every single Palestinian I know is extremely happy with what is happening. And one other reason is, you know, the, the, the joint struggle against apartheid, apartheid Israel, um, apartheid South Africa. But also we need to clarify, I mean, because I have been mentioning the word apartheid, apartheid. And apartheid is only one form of oppression used by apartheid, by apartheid Israel against the Palestinians. You know, Israel is using a multitude system of oppression. I remember against Palestinians. I remember when we met, uh, uh, Desmond Tutu, and my friend, comrade here, Ronnie Cassas here, both of them actually told me what you are going through, in, and that was before the genocide, by the way, before the, the, the current genocide. What you are witnessing in Palestine is far, far wo worse than, wa than what we have to deal with 
uh, you know, under apartheid, in the heydays of apartheid. Um, South Africans talked about, you know, the four pillars of the struggle. The most important pillar of the struggle at the end of the 80s for them was international solidarity. And this is what we are saying. We Palestinians, especially Gazans now under the bombardment of apartheid Israel, we want, you know, those sentiments of international solidarity to be translated into actions. And we believe that South Africa has begun that process. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 uh, uh, if I can, uh, uh, I think that's a key point. I mean, when I watched it, I'm also skeptical of these things because we've been disappointed so many times. But the power of it and the fact that the world was watching was really, I, I think, galvanizing and took our struggle in the international arena to another level. Ahmed, I have a question for you. But first, let's take a look at these two very short clips. They're very short, I promise, from the Israeli presentation. Uh, the first one, uh, they're both of Tal Becker, who is an Israeli uh, official who uh, was one of the Isra Israeli team. Let's go to that first can I, can I, can I just pop in here some for a moment? I don't yeah. feel like listening to the Israeli presentation, Ali. Okay, is that okay? We, that, that's yeah. fine. It, it was a very yeah, yeah. I really don't feel like that. I mean, uh, unless but, you yeah, wanted to listen to Hitler, you wanted no, to listen no, to no, the no, racist well, of the American South, I, I really no, don't think we no, need no, to give no, them a we'll, platform. We'll, I'm sure we'll, you understand we'll, my point. We'll skip, we'll skip it. That's fine. I mean, you know what they said, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know what they said. It was, exactly. it was tough to, exactly. it was tough to We'll skip it. But, um, let me ask you, Ahmed, you already addressed one of the questions I had for you, which is what might the court do? So you, what I heard from you, I think, is that it's not necessarily a slam dunk. They might not necessarily agree to everything South Africa asked for. And we shouldn't underestimate the effect of some of the uh, Israeli arguments, even though the presentation is largely garbage. We'll save that discussion for now. And by the way, full of many of the lies that we have debunked, including about uh, <coughs> children being tied up and burned and mass rapes and the other lies you've talked about. What I want to ask you, Ahmed, and this relates to what you said, Haidar, about the colonial West, is, but there are some third countries that are intervening shamelessly on the side of Israel, most notably Germany, intervening on behalf of a party accused of genocide. I want to get your reaction to that, Ahmed, and also what impact do you think that might have on the case? Should be, we, we be worried about Germany's interventions? Um, no, I, I don't think, to be honest, not at all. But if you allow me before answering your question, your question, I will answer it. I think it's a very good question. And it's important to note, although like the, the um, genocidal statements are very apparent in this case and very important, um, South Africa's case, first and foremost, relied on the ways in which Israel was conducting the military operation. Then the uh, uh, um, uh, genocidal statements. So the first argument is actually on the ways in which Israel is conducting the, the military operation and how these genocidal statements have been trickled down and translated into actions in, uh, on the ground 
and how the the, um, uh, the 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 soldiers have received this this instructions and implemented it. Um, so I just wanted to clarify this point. South Africa anticipated very well the Israeli arguments. I think uh, it wasn't hard for them to anticipate that, and and they um, they addressed it beforehand. On Germany's intervention, I don't think we need to be uh, very worried. The only party that needs to be worried is Germany itself, if about its reputation, if there is any left of it, to be honest. Because um, it's, this action is showing us, uh, while South Africa is learning from history and teaching, uh, schooling the whole world, especially the West, on what true leadership is like, Germany is proving once again that it never learns from its shameful uh, history, and I see no no appropriate response better than uh, that of the presidency of Namibia, schooling uh, mm -hmm. uh, Germany, telling them you're technically telling them you're in no place uh, to make such a statement. Uh, but if you allow me, even from a legal perspective, Germany intervened in many cases, uh, saying the exact opposite of what it would say uh, about genocide in Israel, uh, including in Myanmar. There are specific arguments that Germany has put forward that cannot walk back. The court would look at these arguments and look at what, what Germany would have to do. I understand that this is politically motivated, this is what the political leaders want, but I feel sorry for German lawyers who would want to work on this because it would be an impossible mission or a very difficult uh, uh, job to come up with a new arguments that you craft them only to serve the purpose in this case in support of Israel, while you said the exact opposite in other situations. Uh, so I think the court might even, and the court can do that, might tell Germany that uh, we won't accept your intervention at all. You presented your views on genocide in other cases, and you don't need to make them in every case. You told us your interpretation of the law. Thank you. Sit aside. It's also a possibility. Or Germany might be allowed to intervene, and it won't have any value, and we have a precedent to that. Uh, uh, Germany intervened in the, um, uh, procedure, uh, the proceeding on the scope of the International Criminal Court's territorial jurisdiction, saying that Palestine is a state and doesn't qualify as a state for the purposes of the Rome Statute, and to be honest, made a fool of themselves. It was a political mm -hmm. uh, uh, submission. It didn't have, uh, in my view, any legal uh, uh, arguments, and it was to decide. It was of no value uh, uh, whatsoever. I think this is a record of history showing us that Germany uh, haven't learned a thing of its shameful uh, history, and it should know better. It should look to the global south, to the true leadership in South Africa, in Namibia, and other states, and it should address its shameful past and its uh, atrocities, atrocities against African people, especially in, in Namibia, before it dares to speak uh, about genocide. The history of the colonial West as a whole is that of genocide. Genocide is inherent in, uh, in uh, Western settler uh, colonial ideologies. Yeah. Ahmed, uh, I know you have to go, so we'll let you go. Uh, also, Haider, uh, both of you, uh, we'd love to have you back on as soon as possible. There's so much more to talk about in terms of South Africa's historic role at the ICJ uh, hearings and, um, and, and, and the implications um, you know, for Palestinians and for people under the thumb of, of Western imperialist uh, oppression uh, in general. Um, so, Ahmed, uh, you're an interna international legal expert at Al-Haq. Uh, Haider, you are a writer, scholar, uh, educator, and, and, and comrade of ours. Uh, thank you both so much.
for being with us on the Electronic Thank you both so much, Haidar. We're so happy to see you, and I, I look Thank forward you. to seeing you in in the flesh soon, uh, yeah. inshallah, somewhere. Inshallah, inshallah. inshallah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nora. Thank you, Ali. And thank you, Ahmad. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was good seeing you, Haidar. Shukran. Shukran. Bye. Thank you both. Um, and uh, in a few minutes, we will go to John for military analysis as usual. But we also wanted to bring on another good friend of ours and contributor, longtime contributor to the Electronic Intifada, Shahid uh, Abu Salama, joining us from uh, London. Shahid, it's Hi. so good to see you, Habibti. Um, I know that uh, you have been just uh, under so much ex extraordinary pressure, uh, trying to, to figure out your family situation. There is, some of them are still stuck in Gaza, um, trying to survive, um, the, the incessant bombing. Can you give us a sense of, of what your family is going through right now? Sure. First, thank you for your continued, uh, amazing work on behalf of the Palestinians and the oppressed. And thank you for doing every effort possible to amplify our voices um, and to debunk Israeli lies and uh, the complicity of Western media in normalizing this genocide. And I was also very happy to see my educator, Dr. Haider Aid. It was, uh, I was so happy to see him smiling, like, wow. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. And, and it is people like him, really, and like my mom, who has also survived more than two months of uh, genocide, that amaze me with their strength and their ability to continue to smile. And this smile is such a bliss for me, to be honest. I've, moved, I've, I've been the strongest around my family during this period and since I came back to this country, London, the, uh, the start of the, of, of the of all world's problems probably, <laughs> um, I, I went downhill even, even more to be honest, despite the continuing um, apparent huge gap between the people and the uh, government, we still see um, the cries of millions uh, around the world in the streets calling for ceasefire is undermined and our lives is undermined and, and it's, if we, if we feel as if we don't matter. Um, I can, there's a lot happened since I last spoke to you and I was last time, oh my God, I, it was, it was also the last time I saw Rifat speaking in his flesh life here with, with us. Yeah, it was so, uh, you know, when I see you, even though I can hear the pain in your voice, I also feel reassurance because your your presence is reassurance for us and your voice is such a powerful voice and you haven't stopped since this began, as difficult as it is, you haven't stopped speaking out 
and I know the kind of um, hatred you face online uh, even before this genocide, and uh, this is something we reported on the Electronic Intifada, you faced so much vitriol and hate from the Zionist lobby and the Israel lobby in the UK because of your advocacy. So I, I just want to take this opportunity to say that we see the strength in you as well, and you give us the you give us the strength back. And uh, uh, thank you, Shah. Thank you for for that. Thank you all, but really, like whatever, like all our sacrifices feel. I don't. I mean, like it's hard to put things in words these days because we see we see the best of us are being assassinated and and killed in cold blood and families wiped out, carpet bombing non-stop, displacement non-stop. And my family, I never expected this, but really like my family was one of those that at, at times like this, we would be offering support for others mm. and other families would be relying to us, we'd be hosting families. Uh, fleeing other way, uh, you know, the heavily bombarded areas. And now my family is being displaced from, from one place to the other. So now they've left Al-Nusayrat refugee camp because now Al-Nusayrat is a, uh, a distant zone. And they fled to Rafah in a journey like of horrors, pitched a tent. And they've been surviving under this tent in freezing weather for nearly three weeks now. And, and this is nothing even comparable, like nothing incomparable with others, other families who have many of their loved ones missing or arrested or killed, buried, not even like some, some people, so many families are still staying on top of their uh, the ruins of their own homes, knowing that their loved ones are still buried under and there's no way of getting them out. These stories that we hear, we're to this day for four days now, we've been disconnected from uh, my family in the South and we have like minimal information about them that we get every now and again when when they manage to uh, steal some internet somehow, like get a connection after going through great oaths to just tell us that we are alive, we are still alive, but we survived again by chance. This is every day for everyone in Gaza. Every day they survive by chance and every day is, is about uh, struggling to, to find the basics, to feed uh, the little ones, the children, to find enough water and food. And, uh, and, and they go through great oats to even find uh, wood to make fire so they cook or, um, or do laundry or and everything is, is such a great struggle. My dad is 72 years old and he's terribly sick. And, and uh, my dad, uh, you, you know, he, he's 
very healthy and athletic. He's uh, had like such a healthy routine since uh, the beginning of his life, or let's say his second birth after he was released from Israeli jails in 1985 swab deal, and and he's been taking pride in his health, and now and now imagine. He can hardly walk 50 meters. He can hardly walk 50 meters. And he can find no medicine anywhere. My brother, my youngest brother, who's a father of two, he's super sick. And he went to a field hospital in Gaza, saw people without limbs, queuing, and he felt ashamed and went back because all he has is severe flu. And and my niece, my five-month-old niece, who was born just a month and a half before this genocide started, is struggling to uh, breastfeed from her mother. And we know of the consequences of such prolonged trauma on uh, breastfeeding mothers and pregnant mothers. And, and, and the case has been also presented in the South African case uh, against Israel's genocide, that Israel is, is even is deliberately targeting the reproductive health of Palestinian women. Yeah. So all of these horrors combined, and God, can I can I take some time to to speak about my family in the north? Please. So, uh, God, the horrors are just endless. So, uh, if you remember the the short uh, surviving uh, humanitarian post that we had at that time, we managed to. Uh, get some connection back with the, with the North, with our families in the North, my uncles and aunties and all that. And on our behalf, they went and had a check onto our home and take everything that they could eat to help their starving children. And, uh, and it's through them that we learned of the bombardment of our home. But still then, there were still some features to the house, like the house was bombed, uh, two shells in in the uh, uh, fourth and fifth floor, and uh, another in the in the first floor. The first floor was by far the 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 especially my mom's room was like completely destroyed. But you could see some features, some memories that are still there. The um, like the mirrors with the embroidered uh, uh, frames, the my my grandparents, the survivors of uh, of 1948 Nakba, they their their pictures was there, and and then um, three weeks ago, something like that, um, we uh, we receive uh, the news. Actually, I learned first from live coverage because we're. Most of the time when we can't uh, get hold of our families because of uh, communications completely down, the, the only news we have 
or the only channel we have with Gaza is through live coverage, through people like Visan, like uh, Wael, uh, uh, Mu'min, um, all those people who have become like family members to us after all this time. Anyways, uh, so I learned through live coverage that Israel has been like doing this systematic um, um, setting fire to uh, homes in Asaftawi Street. And I heard Asaftawi Street and I was like thinking my heart dropped to the ground. I was thinking, may God protect our home because like, yes, it is destroyed, but there's, there was, we cling to hope that if the people, if my family in the north, in the south, displaced in the south now, will have the opportunity to go back, at least they will have a place to shelter them from rain, from, like, there is, something could be done, yeah? But now through my family in the north, we know, um, we received images of our building completely pitch black. The fire has eaten everything. All our memories is destroyed. And this, like, it's been very triggering, really. I mean, we, we know we've lost lives and it, it feels sometimes that it's not worth speaking of homes in, in the and the scale of loss of human loss that we're suffering, but but also the loss of a home is such a um, a big issue that we shouldn't take lightly. Yeah. And now there are there are the, the great majority really of Gaza population they have no place to go to even if the war ends today. Yeah. So like, what what is the world is waiting for watching this? And more, more to tell you about my my family in the north, my uncles and un- and aunties. They've been going through like another level of of uh, a nightmarish reality. Like um, hardly uh, having, even if they had one meal a day, they would be saying Alhamdulillah, thanks to God. If they had one meal, they they would share everything with the uncles and aunties and like hundreds of them, they would share a loaf of bread or a couple. The uh, the, the old sacrifice, the, uh, their, their bites to uh, the little ones so they could go to bed in hunger just so the, the little ones are fed the um my two oldest uncles who were born before nakba and were child survivors of nakba my uncle khadir and my uncle uh, muhammad the two of them were detained amongst hundreds of people in the north and they've disappeared and we've seen We've seen the, degrad- the denigration of the Palestinians and the humiliation, and it's it's horrific to imagine. Also, my 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 uncles were who are older than the state of Israel, being stripped of their dignity, humiliated by 
soldiers who are barely 18, 19 uh, years old and have no respect for human life, no, no respect for the elderly, nothing. Like, I was horrified to, to learn of this, of this news. And to this day, my, un my uncles, they were disappeared and uh, arrested for days. And to this day, they don't speak about it. They, they say, let's focus on surviving through this day and tomorrow. There's no point of telling you about, about what we've been through. But they've seen horrors. They can't speak about it. I don't know what to say, to be honest. Like, there's like no tears left shed. There's no pleas left to make. Like, what else is is needed to happen? Like, are they are they waiting for our complete annihilation? Because they are annihilating Gaza. As we speak, as we speak, I mean, this is something that you tweeted the other, other day, Shahd, really struck me because we read the press reports from Israel. I mean, the claims from Israel and even the United States, they say that the war is winding down or Israel is withdrawing units from here and there, which, which may be true, but they haven't stopped or slowed down the killing. Uh, I mean, every day it's 150, 160, 170, 200 people, and every one of those people is precious to, uh, to, to, to everyone in Gaza, to all of us, and it's not slowing down. I mean, can you imagine now, imagine if there was, heaven forbid, a terrorist attack that killed 100 people in London or a hundred people in, in, in Brussels. I mean, those attacks happened before, unfortunately, in the past, and it was considered a national trauma for months, if not years. And we're talking about that on a daily basis for three months, and on top of everything else that's happening that you described. I, and, and this is why uh, we've seen, uh, we saw this report last week from Oxfam that said, that this is the bloodiest conflict in recent history in terms of the daily average death toll. And uh, I think we have those numbers that we can show that, that on average since this genocide started, Israel has killed 250 people a day. And mind you, they're talking about the people killed by bombs and bullets and shells. They're not talking about the people dying from hunger, from thirst, from cold, from chronic illness that can't be treated, the thousands of cancer patients who have no treatment in Gaza now, the thousands of uh, people with diabetes or who need dialysis or the premature babies uh, left to die in the hospitals. So we're talking about 250 people a day. And the next closest was Syria, where it was 96 people a day on average. Of course, that's utterly horrifying, but it's not even half of the death toll in Gaza and Ukraine, 44 people a day. Still a horrifying toll. Of course, these are averages, but look at how the West talked about, there are the numbers there. Gaza, 250 people a day, according to Oxfam. Syria, 96. Sudan, 51. Iraq, 51. Ukraine, 44. Uh, Afghanistan, 24. And Yemen, 16 people a day. Every 
one of those tolls is horrifying. But then Gaza, 250 people a day. This is a genocide. And uh, Shad, our, our, all our love goes out to you and to all your family and to everyone in Gaza. And we thank you for your strength and for telling these stories because it, you shouldn't have to bear your, your pain in the open and tell these things. But in a world that denies, or at least a lot of the world, the so-called West that denies this genocide, you and all the other people in Gaza and from Gaza who are giving this testimony are making it impossible for all those people to say, we didn't know, we had no idea, if only we knew. No, you know. This is the best documented genocide in history. Can I say something before I go? Thank you so much. I think they know. And, and right now, I don't think that the world is, is uh, ignorant. Uh, we're not in 1948. Um, we're not even in the times when uh, the Iraq war happened. At that time, still, there wasn't uh, much Internet and social media and whatnot. We're at different times. And the information is uh, accessible, it's available, and there has been advances in so many studies, settler colonial studies, and la la la. Uh, it's, uh, it's crystal clear. It's crystal clear, mm -hmm. but we live in a world, in a world order that uh, has uh, designated some people as worthy and others as unworthy. And, um, and we have to all fight this. We have to all fight this hierarchy of lives, hierarchy of human lives, uh, of, of uh, human rights, um, and take responsibility for being part of this status quo that is um, normalizing these un unequal structures that allow a country like the UK to appear, uh, pose on behalf of humanity, offering settlements uh, to uh, Hong Kong uh, people displaced from Hong Kong and and from Ukraine. But once, when it came to Palestinians, and by the way, I am I am British since uh, since June. I thought for once this British this British citizenship could save my family but they don't care about my family because they're Palestinians. My direct family is Palestinian, and I'm the only one uh, British. If I was Ukrainian, I would have got a different statement mm -hmm. uh, and, and a different treatment. I, got, I, I reached out to my MP, a Labour MP, a Labour MP who uh, ignored my emails, multiple emails I sent her. She ignored them first, and then she sent an email, a generic email, it turns out, most likely a generic email that she sent to all of her constituents that are opposing uh, genocide and calling for ceasefire, because she made no note of my family and my requests upon her to save my family. She, she took no notice of this, 
and she just responded to me with a letter recycling all Israeli uh, talking lines and repeating the government's um, um, stance. Hmm. Although the, the government policies are on the side of the Palestinians, and this is something that the UK government, the UK people need to understand, the policies as they exist, we have policies in place that recognize Gaza as an occupied uh, not only Gaza but also Gaza and West Bank as, as occupied regardless of Israel uh, recognizing itself as an occupying power or not Israel can say whatever it's an occupying power and they and their own policies recognize this and those that are speaking on behalf of UK government uh, Rishi Sunak and David Cameron and uh, the despicable Zionists self-proclaimed Zionist uh, Keir Starmer Keir Starmer he's he's a lawyer apparently a lawyer and and he doesn't see any genocidal things going on in Gaza Zionism without qualification Shahid people in the chat are asking you to name the MP one second, Harriet. Yeah? Harriet Harman. Harriet Harman, right. Harriet Harman, who, who, who was actually, minister. yeah, former minister and formerly the, uh, the, the, the temporary leader of the Labour Party at one point. Yeah. The sort of the standard yeah. leader. So that, that's good to know. People should, People uh, in the UK should uh, should be writing to Harriet Harman and letting her know what they think of her uh, her her dismissive and dehumanizing treatment of Shet and probably other Palestinian constituents. Yeah. Who are, yeah. yeah, it's simply racism. I mean, like as you said, Shahid, like if if, if you'd been um, Ukrainian, there's no way they would have just ignored your email like that, and they would have, you know, your family would have been allowed to. Exactly, and I'm about, about emergency situations. We are dealing literally with a, a status, like yeah. a situation of life and death. We don't have the luxury of time. Right. We don't. So, yeah. Thank you all for listening, and thank you for joining my campaign against my MP, hoping that <laughs> humanity will be taken a bit. Yeah, keep us posted on that, of course, Shahid. <laughs> uh, Shahid Abu Salama, you're a writer, educator, scholar, uh, activist living in London. We appreciate you. We're so grateful for you. And um, we'll have you back on very soon. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. And so much Thank love you. to you, Shahid. Thank Stay you. Strong. Take care. Me too. Thank you. Uh, okay. Well, Can I just show you, before we, before we move to the next, Segment, yeah. but just listening to Shahid, it's so, and to Haidar and to Ahmed, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's all so much, and it, we're so grateful mm-hmm. to them because, you know, it's, it's, they're going through, I mean, we're all going through, but especially them going through this unbelievable trauma, and we're grateful to them for being willing to talk about it. Yeah. And I, I, you know, they shouldn't have to talk about right. it in, in this way, but at the same time, 
We we want the world to know, and that, that's the situation Palestinians have always been in. We're, we're always having to explain and always having to to justify our own existence. But just before we move to the next thing, I wanted to show something. I wish I'd shown it when 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 Shahid was on, but uh, I've mentioned before that in 2013 I visited Gaza, and one of the things we did when we were there. We went to the agricultural area east of Khan Yunis, Khuzaa, and we met the farmers there. And this was in May. They were harvesting the wheat. And I grabbed some of the wheat mm. that they had just harvested and put it in my pocket and brought it home. And I've kept it in this jar for 10 years, and I keep it here on the desk. And it's a reminder, and I often think of those farmers I have no idea what happened to them or where they are now or if they're dead or alive, but I do have these seeds from Gaza and uh, they they grew out of the soil of Gaza and maybe one day uh, we'll be able to replant them there. Anyway, just something I keep on my desk. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Ali. Um, and yes, so many seeds uh, that will be planted. Absolutely, and and uh, some of the people who are sowing those seeds, uh, John is going to talk about uh, in terms of seeds of resistance, in terms of seeds of defiance and in defense of Palestinians. John, you're up. This is my seeds from Shajaya. This hmm. is the lavender plant from Shajaya that I keep uh, above my desk, so... Mm. Uh, just wanted to grab that when Ali showed that. That's perfect. Uh, unscripted. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as as ever, it's always difficult to follow um, those immense human stories. Um, but I'm going to do it, and we're going to follow it up with um, the resistance, which is um, while all of this uh, carnage is going on. Of course, Israel's uh, objective is to attack civilians and to attack hospitals and schools. Um, and their military objectives are very, very thin. And I think we're going to see in this next uh, half an hour of videos uh, what that looks like on the ground. And um, just to say, I, I organize these videos. All of these videos have happened since you last saw us. Um, I'm not picking the best of the entire war. This is what's happened in the days since we last saw you. No, and also, they're organized by location. Um, in part because that's how the Kassam Brigades fight. They're broken down like a military order um, into regional battalions, and those battalions fight um, uh, on their terrain, in their areas, in the areas that they know. Um, and so I think just for the historical record, it's important to say that we, we're following each of these battalions in their battles uh, in the defense of Gaza. So um, maybe if you want to just show the map tomorrow, we, we've, we talked about a lot of places, um, we've talked about a lot of places, uh, location places in this tiny little place uh, of Gaza, 25 miles long. Um, we're going to start in the north, Beit Hanun, Beit Lahia, that you can see up at the top of the map. I'll just go through the map quickly for people who aren't uh, as familiar with the terrain. So you have the north, Beit Lahia and Beit Hanun. Um, then you see that darkened area. That's all Gaza City. And there's fighting and battalions all throughout Gaza City. Sheikh Radwan and Tufa and Shajaiya. 
Um, and then you see that open space. That open space is the farmland um, that Ali talked about. There's farmland along the eastern edge. Um, in the middle camps, you see Barrage there in the built-up area where you see the dark in the middle of the map, right in the skinny center. Um, that's the middle camps that Haider was talking about. Those are the, the middle refugee camps. And because of the way that Israel has set up uh, their occupation of the Gaza Strip since the 1950s, it was to cut these areas off. And so what they're doing right now is uh, basically a battle plan that has existed in Israel for more than 70 years. When we saw that grid map uh, of where the areas they're telling people to live, uh, to move that aren't safe areas, those are actually maps that Ariel Sharon used in the 1970s um, to police Gaza. Um, you can see in the south there, Khan Yunus, um, what Haider was talking about about Khan Yunus is that Gush Katif was the settlement that you can see all along the coast there. So Khan Yunus, an entire generation, two generations of people grew up in Khan Yunus looking at the sea, but never able to access it because of the settlements. Um, and that's the reality of the Gaza Strip. So we're going to start in the north here with these first videos tomorrow. We're going to just show people, uh, because the battle in the north, Israel says the battle in the north is over. Um, they say that uh, they've dismantled Qassam as a military framework, which is clearly just an absurd claim. Because what we're watching here is fighters literally on the next block uh, observing Israeli soldiers on the ground in the northwest. Um, the fighters clearly still have command and control in this area. And in the next part of this clip, you're going to see them. Um, they're attacking that ground force there um, within one block. So we're talking street by street um, fighting. In this shot, we're going to... Kassam is going to take us first person as if we're there through the streets uh, of Beit Lahia. Um, and you can see that the, the fighting force still exists. You can see them here signaling to each other, professional fighters, disciplined fighters. We're not even into the guerrilla part of the army uh, at this point. We're seeing well-trained fighters um, creeping up here. Um, you're going to see a tank around this corner. Um, and he's calling and signaling to the fighters because the fighters have control of these streets. Um, although there's drones in the air um, and tanks on the ground, the Israelis have nothing like control in this area. Um, and so you're going to witness here um, an ambush of this tank where we have the spotter, the shooter, and the cameraman all being able to deploy to the same operation. And as we've seen, these information operations, having these camera crews operating on the ground with the fighters has given us a unique view into this fight. But as Abu Beda and Abu Hamza, the Sarai al-Quds spokesperson, have said, obviously these what we're seeing on video is not all of the operations. All of the units don't have cameramen embedded with them. Um, but we can see here, um, again, able to use the houses, able to use the destroyed buildings um, to target the armored vehicles in the north and showing us uh, evidence of the burning vehicles um, from these strikes. Um, and this is the north where, where Israel says they've dismantled Qassam as a military framework, whatever that means, and that they're fighting pockets of resistance now. So they're trying to wrap up this war um, with no military objectives achieved. Um, and, and that's, that's in the north. 
And now we move on to the next one, um, Tamara, number two here. This is a tunnel ambush. Um, it, we know that they have hundreds of, Kassam has hundreds of kilometers of tunnels that have to be uh, combated. And we've heard the false story about them flooding it with water. We haven't heard anything about that in a month since they told us this story. But what we're looking here is we're looking at a, a CCTV camera footage of watching uh, the Israeli Special Forces unit. This is a Yahalom unit, an anti-tunnels unit. And we're watching somebody here, watching on a CCTV camera, talking to fighters above ground, preparing the ambush here. Um, you can see the dogs moving through. The dog is part of the Special Forces dog. And the guy in the CCTV is controlling by telephone fighters above and below ground. He's saying they're coming, they're coming. And they're setting this ambush properly above the ground. There's still fighters above the ground, what we're watching here, and fighters below ground. So there's fighters in three different places here. You're watching on CCTV, above ground, and below ground. Now we're watching from inside the tunnel. The commander's able to watch them dangle this camera down to try to see if they can go into this tunnel. Yesterday in the New York Times, um, the Israeli and American intelligence officials revised the amount of kilometers of tunnels that they believe. They've been saying that there's 500 kilometers of tunnels, and yesterday they're saying there's now 725. So they've added 50% of the tunnels. Um, and what we're seeing here is this commander on CCTV footage control, telling his fighters where to go to set off an ambush in a tunnel. And this is just a small uh, sampling of what would happen. Let's watch it around again. So we see the drone come in with the infantry unit. The drone is checking out to see if they can see anything. But because so that's an Israeli walk, drone. Israeli drone. drone. Yeah. So they can see the Israelis are coming in and seeing that they can't see anybody because they're being watched on CCTV footage with a closed line, um, a commander. Uh, commanding his troops who are both above and below ground. So the drone's giving them footage outside to say that nobody's there. He says, leave the water tank lid open. He's setting up the cam, he says, set up the camouflage, create it like there's the, like the lid is showing a bit. They're trying to get the, the exact luring of the troops. And they're saying now they've entered the room, now go downstairs. So the fighters are upstairs at that moment. And the commander on the CCTV footage is telling them, okay, move out of the room now. The soldiers are coming. So now they move from the above level to the fighters on the below ground level. And we're going to pause it here with three, six, eight soldiers that they're showing right there that are going to be a part of this tunnel operation. Um, this is them scoping out the tunnel. That's with the an camera. Israeli camera coming That's down? That's the Israeli camera coming down okay. being seen by the Palestinian camera. Um, and he's saying, so leave, there's still people above ground at this point. That's the, the flashlight of the Israeli troops coming over to see if they can go down in this tunnel. Um, and the commander above, the commander above says, deal with them, do it. And you see the fighters emerge from the tunnel and this is, I believe, what we're seeing here is the first time we have seen in this three-plus-month war shots in anger fired underground. Um, so you're meeting the ambush under the ground and then detonating the tunnel. 
And this kind of an operation gives you, first of all, the understanding that the command and control of this group is clearly uh, not collapsed. Whatever the opposite of that is, is having people at three different locations uh, plotting your uh, tunnel ambush. Um, and you can see that no matter how much the Israelis spend on their gear, on their drones, no matter how many forces they're sending into these areas, basically Qassam, with the most basic tools, a CCTV footage, a commander watching on a computer screen, is organizing his and troops. That, do you think that commander is above ground or underground, John? He's in a third location. I, he's in a third location. So I don't even know if he's on. He doesn't have to be on site there. As long as he's getting that video feed, we could be seeing something here where he has multiple video feeds. Um, and then they're communicating, clearly communicating on a closed telephone line. So as these soldiers with all their jamming equipment and all their technology are coming in, the Palestinians are literally on the telephone commanding. Look, at you can see the line there on his hand. They're literally on the telephone commanding their forces above ground and below ground to carry out this ambush. And this it's kind a of good, footage, a good thing they didn't get rid of their landlines then like the rest of us. Yeah, well, they closed their landlines, and then the Israelis have tried for a decade to get into this system, and maybe there'll be more time on other shows to talk about a couple of those raids were spectacular counterintelligence operations by the Qassam Brigades to prevent the Israelis from planting bugs in this closed network. And so we've seen the fruits of that throughout this war. We saw that footage from Shujaia where we had the fighters coordinating multiple sides of the ambush on the telephone. Um, so this closed line is above and below ground and clearly being used to great effect, whatever the opposite of collapsing your command and control John, is. John, a question for you. At the end of that clip, you see the, you see the guys going down the tunnel and they're firing. Those are the Palestinian fighters. And then they presumably go back and then you see smoke or dust coming in the tunnel, which suggests there was an explosion uh, that presumably the Palestinians set off. Previously, you talked about the dangers of underground combat, particularly setting off an explosion in the context of a narrow underground tunnel where oxygen is limited, where probably the effects of an explosion would be amplified because basically you're like in a gun barrel. What 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 are we seeing there? How could how is it possible to set up explosions in tunnels and only harm the Israelis and not harm the resistance fighters? I mean, what what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, so the size of the explosion, whether you're carrying out a catastrophic tunnel collapse operation or just blowing up that one entrance. But like I said, this is the first time that I believe that we've seen shots in anger underground because even your guns, the acoustics of the guns are crazy. Um, everything that you know above ground doesn't work underground. So all of their systems don't work. Um, and that's why these Yahalom units have been training to try to do this kind of operation. And if we were seeing um, Israeli military successes, we would see footage like this every day because there's hundreds of kilometers of these tunnels and their own people are in these tunnels. So presumably um, they're attempting to find their people in these tunnels. And we haven't seen anything at all like that. This is the first one. And I'm showing you this one because it's the first one that we've seen 
uh, of this way. Some of the ways that they can detonate, we know that they use a door system, that their doors are a very important part of the structure of the tunnels. Um, so we saw in that footage, just from that, that was a CCTV camera footage underground. And we could see the fighters advance and then withdraw. So it's possible they're withdrawing back behind a door and then closing that door to seal off the blast. Um, and that's something that they can do all throughout the network, because as the Israeli captives who were released told us, the, the, the network is a spider web. Um, it's not straight lines. It's not a grid. Um, and so they're able to close off these whole sectors by closing these steel doors, which are also blast proof doors, which help keep the structure against these airstrikes from above, which is also why the airstrikes from above don't destroy this tunnel network. The Israelis know that. They said that before the war, that there's no way you can get at these tunnels that um, we know that are as, as deep as 80 and 100 meters. It's not even close to being affected by what's happening on the surface. So that detailed tunnel operation that we saw being coordinated from three different places is taking place somewhere that Israel is saying, uh, Kassam has been dismantled. Completely absurd um, claims. But let's go to the next one. This is Gaza City, um, and this is a remarkable uh, situation in Gaza. Which one? Oh no, sorry. This is one more from uh, this is one more from Sheikh Radwan. This was yesterday in Sheikh Radwan, the same area where the tunnel operation took place. Now we're seeing here a combination attack. We see the troop carrier, and that's a Shawaz. The uh, explosively formed penetrator bomb being remotely detonated. See, you can see the, the Yassin hasn't been fired yet. So there.